Well, this morning, uh, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, this will be a preliminary sermon on James 2, 14 to 26. We'll be comparing what James has to say here in verse 24 with what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, to Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And so it's a kind of Bible study, as it were, um, as I said, a preliminary message. So I'll read from several different sections in James and then in Romans, and then we'll walk through this together. Hear now the word of the Lord. James 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Picking up in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. You can remain there. Picking up in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but, a, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would uh, make these things, these important teachings clear in our minds, and that we could all the more rejoice in our salvation and give glory to your name, in Christ's name, amen. Well, from the readings, I think you, you should have picked up that we're going to be talking about this doctrine of justification. I've talked about it before. I will talk about it again, I am sure. Let me just share with you a few quotes from the past about this doctrine. John Calvin said that justification is the main hinge upon which salvation turns. Uh, uh, Thomas Kramer, the English uh, Reformation leader in the 16th century, said justification is the strong rock and foundation of Christian religion. Another great Puritan, Thomas Watson, said justification is the very pillar of Christianity. And probably the most famous is Martin Luther, who said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. It's the chief article from which all other doctrines flow. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without justification, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Justification, it's the main hinge, it's the strong rock, it's the very pillar of the church, it's the chief article of our faith. 
of everything that is taught in this pulpit, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say the most important thing is justification. By the way, you may have picked up, you just confessed your belief in justification when you read our confession. Now, I know I say that about a lot of things. Every time I preach, this is the most important passage, and next week it's the most important passage. And it's true. If it's from the Scripture, it's vitally important. But, but in a real sense, justification rises above all other doctrines, not merely because the church stands or falls on it, as Luther famously said. It's important because when you take it into account, you realize you stand or you fall before God when it's related to this doctrine. See, from the point of view of the sinner, what can be more important than to know how to be acquitted on the day of judgment? To know how the curse of God upon your soul is to be removed. And and see, it's an important question. It must be answered. And the answer that Scripture gives is the doctrine of justification. Let me give you another quote. This is from C.H. Spurgeon. This is what he says, as always, in a very picturesque way. The curse of God, he says, on you, on me, on everyone, is not easily taken away. In fact, there was but one method whereby it could be removed. And now he paints a picture. He says, the lightning bolts were in God's hand. They must be launched. God said they must. The sword was unsheathed. It must be satisfied. God vowed it must. How then was the sinner to be saved? And he says, the only answer was this. The Son of God appears and he says, Father, launch your bolts at me. Here is my breast. Plunge that sword in here. Here are my shoulders. Let the lash of vengeance fall on them. Christ The substitute, Spurgeon says, Christ, the substitute, came forth and he stood for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. See, that, beloved, in that picturesque way is the doctrine of justification. Christ, our our substitute, came forth and he stood for us. But the question that remains is this. How do we make the substitutionary work of Christ our own? How how do we secure Christ's righteousness for ourselves? We must, what what, what must we do to be justified? What's our role? Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, Romans 3.28. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, James 2.24. On this most vital doctrine, the one by which the church stands or falls, it seems that two books of the Bible disagree, that there's a contradiction. Both James and Paul are talking about justification and talking about faith. Both turn to Abraham in the same verse, the most important verse in all the Bible when it comes to justification, Genesis 15, 6. They both use it as their illustration. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yet, Paul says we're justified apart from works by faith alone. James says we are justified by works and not by faith alone. And so how do we deal with this? How do we handle this supposed contradiction? We know, 
I'm sure you know that I know, and I'm sure you know yourselves that this isn't a contradiction, but how do we handle it correctly? Uh, This is where the line is drawn in the sand between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. It's a line that can't be crossed. So, how do we answer this? Well, I want to look at two points. I want to look at the nature of a scripture and how to interpret scripture. That's why I said this is going to be a little different. It's going to be kind of a Bible study on Bible study. And and second, I want to directly address that supposed contradiction by applying those principles. And so, let's, let's look at the nature of scripture and how we interpret scripture. See, the supposed contradiction here uh, is a good opportunity to reflect on, well, then what do we do when we come up with something like this? Uh, Because if there's real contradictions in the Bible, if there's literally uh, a one place, I'll use an example, Jesus is not God, Jesus is God, well, then how can the Bible be trusted? If it's wrong in one place, wouldn't it be wrong In others, either it's true or it's not. Either it's without error or it it has error. Either it is consistent or it is not. And the first thing then that we should do when we come to a difficult passage is, is remind ourselves of our belief in Scripture. Remind ourselves what we know to be true. When the Holy Spirit saved you, when you became a believer and he, he opened your eyes to the truth, you, you recognize that, oh, this is God's word. And it is true. It's without error. It's, it's always consistent. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. And so we must come to the difficult passage we're dealing with and, and as, in a sense, bow knowing that our understanding is limited, that we have finite knowledge, and and may be blind to what God is seeking to teach us. We we need to recognize that it may be our ignorance, not the Bible's fault, and and so we bow before it. Um, There's no reason for you to be reading the Scripture, um, uh, you know, all these books and reading it and saying, I don't understand that, to say, well, it must be wrong, I, I just give up. That's not the case. Well, once you have established it as truth, you can say, let me submit myself to it and, and give it another go, as it were. Let me, let, me, let me see what others maybe have had to say. And I do think that there are some important interpretive steps when you're, when you're interpreting Scripture. You need to know the context. For example, that's one. Know the context. The context, by the way, when you're reading the Bible, is the paragraph that that verse is in, and then it's the chapter that verse is in, and then maybe it's the what would be called the pericope or the section that that verse is in, and then it's the book, and then it's the testament, and then obviously it's the whole Bible. That's how it works. And it, not only to know where it is in the Bible and in and, and, and its context that way, you also need to know the historical context. Um, if you're studying one of the prophets, it's important to know if they, they were a prophet before the exile or after. If they came after the exile, they're not predicting the exile anymore. They're just reporting on it. It's important to know the historical context. Or, for example, what about uh, Peter's confe- uh, denial of Jesus? It's vitally important in interpreting that that we remember it came before the resurrection. 
not after. If it came after the resurrection, that's a whole new uh, theology there that we're going to have to look at. He denied the man that stood before him. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing, uh, context. Second, uh, know the whole Bible. So go home. I want you by the end of the week to memorize it all. <laughs> this is called the analogy of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Passages that are incredibly clear help us interpret the ones that we're not too sure about, that are obscure. And you never should build your doctrines on obscure passages. That's what the snake handlers do. They read something in Mark 16, something in Acts, and they start a whole whole cult around handling snakes. I don't even know what the joy would be in that but they do it. You need to let uh, uh, clearer passages explain the more difficult passages. And, and so you need to know the Bible uh, so you can let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is why Bible professors are so helpful. I had Bible professors that could answer any question you had on the Bible um, and know where everything is. I simply could say, you know, uh, we could be studying the Gospels, and I could say, hey, let me ask you a question. In Leviticus 12, 9, what does it say? And he'd be able to say it. They knew the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. And then more than that, just memorizing Scripture really is a wonderful thing, uh, but it's not the only thing. We need to know the meaning of the terms that we're, we're memorizing. And knowing the meaning of the word world, for example, in John, God so loved the world, what does he mean? People say, well, that means he loves everybody exactly the same. Is that what it means? Because in John, his gospel, it means all people. Sometimes it means all different people, different types of people. Sometimes the world's contrasted with the Jews. So it can't be every person. It has to be the Gentiles. Sometimes the world is contrasted with believers. So it's the unsaved. The context tells the meaning. Let me illustrate, as I just said, John 3.16, you could do that with several passages in a moment. I'll illustrate it in our passage, knowing how the meaning of the terms, what the meaning of the term is. And so, this isn't an exhaustive list of, of rules. I recommend, if you want to know the Scripture better, um, that you pick up a good study Bible, and then you could pick up a book like uh, Interpreting Scripture by R.C. Sproul. He gives you the rules, the basic layout of how to do that. You could probably type, well, be careful typing in YouTube because who knows what you'll find. But the idea that you can find stuff online that will help you, um, Leonier Ministries, others as well, that can help you with that. Um, there's books on the hard sayings. You know, you know, everybody, well, you know, my friend, I tried to talk to him, but he shared all these verses that were contradictions, and I didn't know how to answer well, here's my response. I may not have known how to answer right at the spot either, but people have. You know, the Bible hasn't um, stood the, quote, test of time, and some guy in a, in a psych class in 2023 all of a sudden discovered that there's a mistake and we all have to abandon our beliefs, right? I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's foolishness. And so, but there are books to help us. We do want to know the answers, and some things are difficult. That is true. But anyway, they are the rules. When you use those tools and you interpret the Bible correct, you begin to interpret the Bible correctly, and it removes almost all these contradictions. Some of the issues we have have to do with the names of people. 
And so that's the point. Let me look at the second point. I want to show how there is an easy explanation for what Paul says says, and what James says, that they're actually complementing one another. And let me apply the three different terms. Remember, context. My professors would say context, context, context. That's how you interpret the Bible. And so first, let's look at the terms, though. Works, faith, and justification. This is what we're talking about. First word is works. When James used the word works in verse 20, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works. He does not mean the same thing that Paul means by works of the law. And for example, in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul used works to refer specifically to a dependency upon the law of God or the ceremonial law, and in particular in Galatians on circumcision, as a means to justification. But James is writing about something completely different. He has in mind an appropriate actions that are fitting for those who already belong to God through Christ. And think of the context. James 2, 15 and 16 point out that the idea of works has to do with what? Remember, we discussed it, caring for the needy. If some brother or sister lacks food or clothing, the appropriate response of a believer is to what? To meet that need. And, and, and so that would be our works. In the case of Abraham, the appropriate response was obedience to God in offering up his son. And and so James is saying, look, works follow your justification. They did for Abraham. Whereas Paul is denying that works precede your justification, come before it. They're dealing with two different things. And that leads to the word faith. Notice that James does not ask the question, can faith save you? Uh, Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's not saying, can faith save? He's asking, can that type of faith save him? What type of faith? A faith that doesn't produce fruit. Can that faith save? And the answer is no. And not only James, but Paul and everywhere else in Scripture affirms that a person who doesn't produce fruit, who's not living for Christ, has not given up certain sins, has not moved on and progressed in their faith, they don't really have true saving faith. That's what James is dealing with. Uh, Jesus taught this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Whoever believes is justified. That's what Paul means, right? That Jesus said it, that's what Paul means. James, on the other hand, would quote, for example, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. So Jesus says, believe on him as Lord, believe the gospel, and you will be saved. And then Jesus also says, but everybody that does that may not be saved. And the point is this, just claiming something with your mouth, that's what James has been focusing on, is not enough. If you truly believed it, it it would produce fruit in your life. And so, 
They both believe real faith alone saves, and they both believe works are a proof of real faith. Paul refers to the former. James is looking at the latter, two different things. What about that word justification? Well, that also has two meanings. Uh, The first pertains to acquittal. That is, to declaring and treating a person as righteous. It's a a judicial term to mean uh, declared righteous. The second, same word, second time, it can mean this. It can mean vindication, proof of righteousness. It's used in that sense a number of times in the New Testament. Well, Paul means acquittal. And James means vindication. Paul is saying, look, your justification before God is apart from works. Your acquittal before God, declared righteous before God, forgiven, no condemnation, all apart from works. James is saying, now that what Paul taught you is true, now that that's who you are, now that you've been justified by faith, that faith uh, should be vindicated, how? By doing good works. It shows that it's real. In fact, 1 John is written for this whole purpose, to show your faith. Um, And when you look at James, that's how he uses the life of Abraham. See, they both quote Abraham, but that's how James is going to use Abraham. That leads us to the, the historical context. When I speak of the historical context, I'm talking about the actual event in Abraham's life. Um, James's argument, says one writer, from the life of Abraham definitely proves that he does not contradict Paul. One of Paul's favorite verses when it comes to Abraham, about Abraham, is Genesis 15.6. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in Galatians. In Romans, he says, And Abraham believed God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is the passage. That quote from Genesis 15, 6, above all other passages, that Paul bases his whole doctrine of justification by faith alone on. He says, Abraham was justified. He was reckoned righteous. He was declared righteous by faith. But it's interesting, isn't it, that James quotes the same exact verse. Uh, He says that the scripture in Genesis 15, 6 was fulfilled in Luke at verse verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? When did that happen? It didn't happen in Genesis 15. It had happened in Genesis, uh, later in Genesis 22. And so James is quoting that story in Genesis 22 to say it vindicates Abraham, his justification that happened apart from works in Genesis 15. And I know you got all of that down, and you have it memorized, and you can teach your neighbor My whole point is that the historical context shows. James uses the story of Isaac to show that Abraham was justified. Uh, Justification was real. Paul uses it to teach us how we are justified. And so we looked at the meaning of terms. We looked at historical context. Now let's look at the intent of the author. Why did they write their books? Well, Paul wrote um, in Romans and particularly in Galatians, um, he's laboring to show uh, 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 that, that, that justification is by faith alone. Uh, 
that it's apart from works. He's, he's trying to teach that. James, on the other hand, is concerned with what kind of faith, faith actually justifies. And Paul, faith alone. James, what kind of faith? Paul is concerned with the nature of justification. James is concerned with the nature of faith. And they take their terms and their historical context and their quotes from the Old Testament to argue their distinct points. That's why, with that, the way Paul defines works, faith, and justification was fitting for him, and same with James. And so just a few basic principles. I know that was fast. I don't expect you to get it all. But the few basic principles of interpretation clarifies that supposed contradiction. Now, we're going to return to the James passage when we return after Easter and Palm Sunday and Easter when I preach on those uh, teachings then. And then we'll come back to James in this passage. But I want to end this week by declaring... Paul's actual teaching on justification. It kind of sets the context. It'll clarify some things when we return back to James. I'm not going to go into great detail, but turn to to chapter 4 of Romans. Paul began his discussion in Romans in chapter 3 about the topic of justification. And, And he explained it. And then now what he's going to do is illustrate what he's saying. He's going to illustrate that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. He wants you to grasp that. And he's going to to look to Abraham. And Abraham was a key figure in the Old Testament. When it comes to how a person is justified before God, he's the model of a true believer. And Genesis 15, 6, he quotes in Romans 4 is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. The rabbis always used to quote it. And the Jewish leaders, unfortunately, they quoted it as a defense that Abraham had his own righteousness. One second century B.C. rabbi commenting on Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now, have you read the Old Testament in Abraham's life? I don't think he was perfect in all his deeds. He was righteous, but he was a sinner, and he wasn't well-pleasing. And by the way, when God called Abraham, he was worshiping a foreign god. And so, another rabbi said Abraham didn't need to repent. And so... What, what, what's happening here, and so the Jewish leaders believe that Abraham was counted righteous in Genesis 5 because he obeyed the commands. Therefore, what Paul wants to do is clarify this and make a case so we will understand, so his audience at the time would understand that justification by faith alone apart from works is what that teaches. Abraham was not saved by works. And and see, if Abraham was not justified by works, if Abraham wasn't justified by works, well, none of us can be. If anyone could have been, it could have been Abraham. It wasn't him. That is his argument. And, And so he establishes that. He goes and says, And to one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I want you to notice something here. Like I said, I've taught on this before, and I'm teaching it now, and then I will be coming back to it often throughout my years here because it's so vitally important. But note in that verse 5 of chapter 4, who is justified? Paul tells us, he does not work. He does not work. Nothing in thy hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, as the hymn writer wrote. 
And then we're told something else about this person that's justified. He's ungodly. God doesn't save the righteous. God saves sinners. This is a person who needs to repent. And so that's the person. And here's the nature of justification. It's a, a legal act. It's, it's a declaration that God is acquitting the ungodly person and is going to put him in, uh, clothe him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't make us godly so that we can be justified. Do you, do you understand the difference? He doesn't say, all right, come to church, read your Bible, do good works, care for the needy, do all these things so that you can be righteous, therefore I can justify you. That is not how it works. That's how it works in the Roman Catholic Church, but that's why the Roman Catholic Church is apostate. They deny the gospel. What the Bible teaches is you are ungodly. You are dead in your sin. You cannot please me. I will send my son. He will die for you in your place. I will give you his righteousness. And now you do good works because of what I accomplished for you. He doesn't make us godly so we can be justified. He justifies us so that we can become godly. The picture is of a man kind of standing in rags and in the filth of his sin, and God comes and puts on him the robe of Christ's righteousness. Many of our hymns address this. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ a solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. If you've sung that, you've sung about justification by faith alone. That was one hymn. We're going to close with a hymn that says this. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds and these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? There's nothing anybody can say. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. That is justification. That's the beauty of the doctrine. We don't have to fear condemnation when we face God. We, we, can, we can approach his throne with confidence. The believer has been clothed. If you believe in Jesus Christ here this morning, if you've embraced Christ, you're clothed in his righteousness. And so God says you are forgiven, ungodly sinner. You have nothing to offer me I justify you freely by my grace, and I declare you righteous because of Christ. So how do we make it our own? I mean, that sounds like a, something we would want, that Christ does all this. How are we personally justified? Paul tells us the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. It is by grace through faith. You must believe in Christ. You must have faith in Christ. You must trust in the finished work of Christ. Christ is the one who secured salvation for the ungodly. Christ is the one who secured salvation for the one who is dead in their sins. Christ accomplished it. Your salvation, anyone's salvation, is found in Jesus. All faith does is connect us to where our salvation is found. Our faith connects us to Christ. 
See, it's not faith for faith's sake. God doesn't say, you want to go to heaven? Just believe it. And then you're like, I just, I got to try hard. I believe it, Lord. I know it. I know it. No. Faith's in an object. It's in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm placing my faith in Christ, and I'm receiving his blessings. That's Paul's message. To have faith in Christ alone, you are blessed and declared righteous. After Easter, as I said, we'll deal with James' message. Uh, but, but let me press this home a little bit. And, and, and these are my last words. Here it is. Have you placed your faith in Christ? I want you to notice what I haven't asked. Have you been to church? Have you cared for the needy? I haven't asked you, have you done this work or that work? Or, or you know, you go to communion, all these things. Have you placed your faith in what Christ accomplished? Do you believe that he died, not only died, but died for your sins? Do you believe that he not only lived, but lived for you? That, that he rose for your justification? That's what Paul calls us to when he talks about justification. When we look at James, he'll ask you to reflect if you say you've done that. He'll say, reflect on your life to make sure you really did. But maybe you're here and you haven't. Do you believe? Well, believe today. Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing that. Don't think any longer about doing it in the future. The future may never come. You don't even know if you have tomorrow. And so if you believe today, if today, earlier this week, you were just engaged in all manner of sin, you were living in complete rebellion to God, and today you say, I believe, you're declared righteous before God because of Christ's righteousness. You're forgiven before God because of Christ. You are free from the bondage of sin because of Christ. You're reconciled to God because of Christ. You are loved by God because of Christ. You are adopted into God's family, and you are now related, as it were, to Christ. And someday, someday, our Savior will return, and we will be resurrected and enter into eternal life. And it will start today if you believe in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, some, of course, more taxing study here in our sermon and understanding your word can be difficult at times. And yet, Father, I pray that not a single soul here today leaves without knowing that in Christ their salvation is found. For those of us that believe, Lord, re uh, renew our, 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 our desire and our, our love for the gospel that saved sinners like us. And for those who haven't, Lord, send your spirit and open their eyes to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.